why well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 3, I changed uh, things about a dozen times this week, and I'm changing them again right now. So some of what I'm going to read is not going to be on the screen for you. If you were, uh, well, I don't want to say it that way, some of you may have noticed in the prayer of confession, we used the exact same one that we used last week. Um, and I, I kind of assume you picked up on that because there's a word in that prayer that probably is not a word that you normally use in prayers. The word baptism. As we remember our baptism into Christ, we don't tend to think that way. We don't tend to remember things like that. And so I like putting things in there on purpose to kind of startle you into remembering these things and the role that baptism plays for us in our lives of devotion. This week, we're going to continue then to look at this role of baptism in our, uh, in our Christian lives. Um, so we're going to read again from 1 Peter 3, but this time we're also going to read into 1 Peter chapter 4. So I'm going to read verse 13 of 3 and then skip down to 18. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good. That's the controlling thought here. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and so they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and, to the, and the dead. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we do ask you once again to fill up our hearts and minds with your word here today. Give us understanding. Through your spirit, Lord, make these words 
plain and clear to us, though they are difficult. But not just in our understanding of the truth, but fill us with the realities of the Christ who dwells within us, so that your word may continue to work mightily within us, to give us confidence, and to remake us in the image of your beloved Son. And so give us ears to hear and eyes to see and courage to do. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Arm Yourselves with Sacramental Thinking is the title for the sermon this morning. Arm Yourselves with Sacramental Thinking. This really is a continuation of what we were looking at last week uh, from 1 Peter 3 with regards to baptism, but we really only dealt with half of the story. Um, albeit the weirder half, um, but we dealt with half of the story where we looked at baptism from the perspective that your baptism is a means of grace within your life to give you confidence that Jesus Christ has been victorious over all of the cosmic powers that exist in reality. That Jesus Christ in his work has been victorious. And in this confession of faith of who Christ is and what he has done here in 1 Peter 3, we are reminded that he has brought us to God by dying for us. And so Christ has died for us to bring us to God. Jesus has been raised from the dead in victory for us. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God for us. And then, like we said, between steps three and or two and four, there was this weird step that we don't tend to think about, and that is Jesus proclaiming his victory over these dark forces, these, these cosmic powers, um, what Paul calls rulers and authorities, um, that what Peter calls these angels who did not keep their proper sphere in Second Peter. That there are these cosmic forces that God made that have rebelled against him. And that rebellion is something that is at work within this world. We don't see it in terms of the actual spirit beings because they're spiritual. But these spirit beings are here. These spirit beings are active. We may not see them, but we see their effects. I quoted from C.S. Lewis last week that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall in our thinking about devils. And really here he's meaning people of the West. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe in their existence, but to feel an, un, uh, an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. This is what we mean when someone says that there's a, there's a devil behind every bush. Or when you've heard someone say, or maybe you yourself have said, the devil made me do it, right? Or Benny Hinn taking off his jacket and 
somehow scaring away the evil spirits by swinging his jacket. I don't know. But there can be this, these two equal opposite extremes to either think that these things aren't really going on and the only thing that's happening in the world is what we see or what we can hear or touch or to go to this other extreme and to say, well, I'm not responsible for my evil or the people out there aren't responsible for what they do. The Bible is clear that there is spiritual rebellion, that the spiritual rebellion is affecting things within this world, and yet man, through Adam, is responsible for sin. You and I can't say, oh, well, it's because of the spiritual rebellion that I am doing what I'm doing. And so there's a call here to acknowledge it, to be aware of it, but not to become so preoccupied with it that we either get frozen to act because we become scared or that we get confused about what we should be doing, thinking that we're supposed to somehow exercise dominion over these things or to just act like they're not even there. We are called to understand that it's there, it is at work, and we see it. We see the darkness. We see the way that, that there is this darkness within this world of sin. We see this darkness as people hate one another, as countries go to war with one another. We, we see this, the darkness of this spiritual realm in so many ways ways and our baptism is a proclamation from God to us that Jesus Christ has already been victorious over these these principles and powers and specifically his word being proclaimed is victorious over them and so our baptism is this encouragement to us. It is this, this, this encouragement to us not to be afraid, an encouragement to us not to try to um, hide our sin or to not be responsible for our sin, but to acknowledge our sin in the confidence of knowing that it's already been taken care of in Jesus Christ. And the result is that Jesus Christ, for us, he is our ark that carries us safely through the judgment waters of God. This is to give you confidence to stand firm. And why did the people to whom Peter was writing, and why do you and I need this confidence? Well, as he says in chapter 5, which I've talked about in the supplemental stuff, we haven't talked much about in here, he is writing to Christians whom he says live in um, Babylon. Babylon is an image that is used throughout the Bible, and you really see this come to its culmination in the book of Revelation, where Babylon is set up as being this type as being this representative of that counterfeit, rebellious kingdom of the dark cosmic forces. Babylon is 
this counterfeit kingdom that is arrayed against God. And in the book of Revelation, we are reminded, is the source of persecution even martyrdom for for those who remain true? And so we need confidence, Peter tells us. We need confidence to stand firm, to not be afraid. Because when we become afraid of this counterfeit kingdom, we open ourselves up to one of two, if not both, responses at different times in different ways. And one response is, is to be afraid and therefore think that there is something left undone. And so I've got to fight and I've got to work hard. And, and I have to manifest the true kingdom within this world. Or, and we need that within the systems of this world so that we feel victorious. Luther called this a theology of glory. In fact, this is what he said was dominating the Roman Catholic Church, which had led it into so many of its errors. It was a theology of glory where where he said that they thought that if Jesus has truly been victorious, then the church must look victorious in this world. And if the church doesn't look victorious in this world, there's a problem. And so as they went about doing the things that they did and the way that they developed their theology, the way that they uh, developed their authority within the church, the Pope became this king figure. And the church was supposed to be ruling over all the different aspects of earthly life, which is why in the history of the Roman Catholic Church there were so many conflicts between the Pope and different kings and emperors. Who was more powerful? Who was more authoritative? The theology of glory says it's the church, and therefore the church would do whatever it had to do to get power and to keep power and to exercise that power. And it led the church into all kind of gross sin. Even the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation acknowledged that it had become a cesspool. Cardinal Cajetan, who was one of the chief opponents to Luther, who represented the Pope in a lot of the dealings that the church had with Luther, Cardinal Cajetan was honest in saying, look, the church definitely needs reform. But what Luther is proposing is preposterous. The church, in this, this desire for, to, to look and to exercise this earthly power, it led it into all kinds of abuses and sins. A theology of glory will do that. A theology of glory will tell you that if Jesus really has been victorious, then my life or the church's existence will be marked by success. We'll be respected. We'll wield influence. My notes say here maybe that it means that we'll win elections. 
The theology of glory is just a fancier way of saying prosperity gospel, which we have talked about in here. Obedience equals earthly blessing, and the more earthly blessing you have, the more confidence you should have that you also have spiritual blessing. But if you are not experiencing earthly blessing, if you're experiencing failure, if you're experiencing weakness, if you're experiencing sickness, disease, if you're losing elections, if you're losing your voice, we think there's a problem. If the world looks like it's winning against the church, we think there's a problem. Peter is just so trying to encourage us not to fall into that thinking. But there's also another error that he is trying to protect us from, and that is the error of accommodation, the path of least resistance. He's very clear in chapter 4. Look, hey, here are the ways that, that here, here's what characterizes the world. And he's not giving an exhaustive list, but he's mentioning some of the big ones that are present at their time as those living in the, the Greco-Roman culture. It is that, that the, the, the Rome or Babylon, uh, you might say, is marked by taking the good things that God has made in order to draw us to him, and they have perverted them into being something that the individual uses for his or her own pleasure, for his or her own sake, for his or her own will, where the individual gets to, to reinterpret and redefine what God has said because of this desire not to maintain our proper bounds of authority, but to become like God himself in determining what is right and what is wrong. The world does this, and it takes these good things. If you look at this list, what this list is representing are not um, things that are inherently evil, but they are evil ways of perverting what is good. Now, one of the things that, it, that you see here emphasized is this idea of physical intimacy. And one of the greatest um, lies that can be told uh, by the world about physical intimacy is that it's something that you can define for yourself. You can gauge in it however you want. You don't have to be within a covenant relationship. There are no downsides of, of doing things your ways and all kind of stuff, right? But I'm not concerned about that this morning. I want us to also remember that the church can sometimes respond to that error with an opposite error and say things like, well, you know, sex is bad. Instead of being clear that it's good, it is a gift from God that can be abused, and when it's abused, it will wreak havoc in your life. We don't want to call things that God has called good evil. But we do want to be honest about when good things get abused and what happens. 
But the bottom line here is this. The temptation for God's people who live in Babylon is to either think that we have to fight and conquer Babylon in terms of external, uh, the way things look externally, or that we accommodate to Babylon and we take the path of least resistance. And we don't do anything that makes ourselves stand, stand out and that will make things difficult for us. In the ancient world, this, this idea that I can be somehow faithful to God spiritually, even though externally my life doesn't look faithful to him, was an effect of Gnosticism and, and, some, and some other worldviews. But it was prevalent in this day and age. In fact, in the early church, in the coming years after Peter writes this, there were, the church would be faced with all kinds of real trials when, uh, the, when there did become official state-sponsored persecution and people were faced with the test of offer your incense to the emperor, offer your incense to the gods, and we'll leave you alone if you don't offer your incense then we're going to make life really difficult for you. We're going to exclude you. We're going to harm you. We're going to kill you. We're going to take you, and we're going to throw you into the Colosseum, and the Colosseum is going to get packed with people who are going to watch lions tear your flesh from your bones. And guess what? There were a lot of Christians that remained faithful, and we read about, we read those stories. But one of the biggest controversies that also happened in the early church was that there were many who did not. There were many who gave in. There were many who did offer their incense. What does the church do with someone like that? When the official state-sponsored persecution was over and things kind of went back to normal and those people started coming back to church. What do you do with that? See, this is not just ethereal, theoretical stuff. This is real. And so baptism is this encouragement to us of Christ's victory over these cosmic powers that are, that are pushing and influencing and driving things in this way. But baptism also is a call to us to remain faithful, not just spiritually, but externally as well. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? Peter says. He says that because they were being harmed physically, socially, psychologically, right? They were being harmed because they were remaining faithful to Christ. Don't give in, Peter says. Don't give in to this lie that you can look like the world externally while remaining faithful to Christ and think that you're going to live a good um, uh, Christian life that actually presents and shows Jesus to the world. If you look like the world but try to speak Jesus to the world, your actions 
will be what is heard. And so, what Peter reminds us of is that this theology of glory that can lead us to try to fight, or this theology of glory that can lead us to try to accommodate, is not the right way of thinking. Instead, what he promotes is what Luther called a theology of the cross. A servant is not greater than his or her master. Those are seemingly benign words until you remember that the master was mocked and beaten, reviled, was treated unjustly by by the court, and then nailed to a bloody cross. When you remember who the master is, these words take on such a greater significance in understanding the pressures that we face in being faithful to Jesus Christ, who has told us that to follow him, we must also take up our cross. The encouragement is, as you do that, Jesus brings you safely through the judgment waters. He brings you safely through what's going to happen. Even Noah was mocked and derided and he was treated unfairly and he was laughed at and fill in the blank. But what happened? He was delivered through the waters. And your baptism now is a sign of this to you, he says. A sign to you that you will pass safely through even the earthly affliction that comes from your enemies. And this is the encouragement we need in order to respond to this wickedness and to respond to the evil that we may um, experience to endure unjust suffering for remaining faithful to Christ. So that in standing firm, it doesn't mean we fight back. And in standing firm, we don't shrink away. Because baptism, Peter Art tells us, is not just a presentation of what God has done toward us. But it is also, he says here, this baptism that saves you, delivers you, is also a pledge of a clear conscience to God. You see, in baptism, it's not just one way, it's two ways, because it is a sign of the covenant, of what God does um, for us and what we do in response. So Peter is encouraging us to this, crucif- uh, to this theology of the cross, or we, what we might call cruciform thinking. Cruciform, just what a fancy adjective, meaning shaped by the cross. But the cruciform thinking to which Peter calls us is not a theoretical or ethereal or just spiritual cruciform thinking. It is fleshly. It is concrete. It is sacramental. Cruciform, true cruciform thinking will be sacramental 
thinking. Because what is it that God is doing in Christ but fulfilling his original purpose that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? This is his original goal. This is his original purpose. And so even as we get ready to celebrate the Advent season, what are we remembering? That God, in order to achieve this end of his will being done on earth as it is in heaven, doesn't just come into the world, he takes on flesh. He could have come in spiritually. Right? The Old Testament is full of those, right? We call them theophanies, where God seems to come in, in what looks like human form. But in Jesus Christ, God has taken on human form. And this human form is not something that he lost when he was raised from the dead. It was perfected. And it's not something that he lost when he ascended to the heavenly places. Jesus still has a body. God's purposes are always for the material and the immaterial to together be reflecting his glory and his will. In order to accomplish that for us, because we did not and could not accomplish that for ourselves, Jesus took on flesh. And then he obeyed God. So that materially and immaterially, Jesus was the embodiment of God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And this appeal to God as a good conscience is a calling for us. Like our Savior who took on flesh and then suffered in that flesh. Takes God's will. And he manifests it concretely to the point that he suffered. Our servant is not greater than his or her master. And the calling that we have as God's people is not just to embrace theological truth, not to just embrace the gospel mentally or spiritually. It is to embody the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and willingly suffer in the flesh in order to reveal Christ's victory over sin, death, and the cosmic forces. This is why in the early church, in the Latin tradition, uh, baptism came to be understood as a sacrament from the Latin word sacramentum, which had two basic uses. One was a legal usage, where a sacramentum was two parties that were in a legal agreement, both had to pay something into the agreement to show that they were going to act in good faith. What's interesting is in court, the person who lost also lost his sacramentum, and that, sacra that sacramentum that he paid uh, was then used for public religious um, worship. You can see why the early church started connecting these ideas. In the Roman army, a sacramentum was a pledge. It was an oath that the soldier made in loyalty to Caesar. 
And we see that in the scripture, what God calls us to as his covenant people is not just to receive his faithful pledge to us, but we respond in pledging our devotion back to him. And so baptism came to be understood as a sacramentum because of what happened within the actual performance of the baptism. Many people, by the way, believe that 1 Peter was originally written as a baptism uh, sermon that was part of a baptismal liturgy that would have happened on Easter. Back in the early church, that's when people got baptized. If they came to, to know Christ during the year, they were discipled and they were trained and they were taught. And then on Easter Sunday, they got baptized. So many people believe this was part of a baptism liturgy. I don't think it was, but it does fit. Because that's what you're doing in baptism. And so baptism is not just this incredible, powerful message of what God has done for us. It is also a powerful way for us to remember what we are to do in response to him. Spiritually or immaterially, and materially together, representing God's will on earth by looking like those who are already in the heavenly places rather than looking like those who belong to Babylon. What he says is that living up to your baptism and in receiving the encouragement that it is to you will lead you also to suffer instead of sinning. It's so easy to try to get out of suffering, and when we do, how often do we accomplish that by sinning in the process? What Peter reminds us is it is better to suffer than to sin, even when that suffering is unjust. Our baptism as a sacrament it gives us this powerful message of God to us. It gives a powerful message of who we are to him. But beloved, it also is a powerful message for how God and the church are to be towards the world. And right now, that means patient. That means long-suffering. Do you think that when God is mocked and you feel like, well, hold up, I've got to protect him, I've got to defend God, do you think he needs that? Do you think he is there going, oh, 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 I just got mocked, what, what, what do I do, what, what do I do about this? No. Psalm 2 tells us how God responds. He chuckles. He doesn't need us defending him. He is quite pleased right now even to allow himself to be rejected and maligned in order to show patience. And so do we. But this patience comes, we are told here in 1 Peter 4, not only because of what Christ has accomplished in his first advent, 
but because of what is coming in his second. We can entrust ourselves to God even to suffer unjustly because we know he's going to make things right. And so our posture toward the world right now needs to be patient, it needs to be merciful, it needs to be gracious, it needs to be aware that those who are doing bad things to us are facing eternal damnation and not to respond in the moment in trying to exercise dominion over them right now. Patience, love, kindness, mercy, being willing to look like you're losing even though in Christ you have already won. Well, how can we entrust ourselves to God to really know that he's going to deal with injustice in the end? Well, how has he dealt with your injustice to him? It wasn't that he just waved a magic wand and decided, forgiven. He poured out his wrath against your sins against God on his son. How do we know that God, or if we know that God has done this with his son, then we are for sure to know that he's going to do this to his enemies. And so till that day comes, what God gives us is baptism. As these waters that remind us of what he has done for us, what we are called to do in response to him, and the patience to go through the waters knowing that Jesus takes us safely through them so that we don't have to fight, we don't have to accommodate, but that we can be at peace and show people Jesus. Have you seen what God did? Look at your baptism. Look at the bread and look at the cup. For as Jesus has said, this is my body. This is my blood. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are feeling more tension and stress and trial today in our Christian lives than what many of, of us have faced in our lifetimes up to this point. And so encourage us not to respond with fighting or with accommodating and help us to respond as pilgrims who know that you are safely taking us through this difficult journey. And may that confidence lead us to respond to reviling by speaking blessing to respond to um, 
people, uh, to, to people being unjust to us by entrusting ourselves to you. Lord, this is difficult for us. It is so counterintuitive for what we have known in the, as Christians in this country. And yet more and more, this is the reality that we are facing and that we need to embrace, not as being unusual, but as being normative for a servant not being greater than his master. And so, Lord, we do pray and ask for your help and for your grace that we might indeed entrust ourselves to you to such a degree that we will willingly suffer evil in order to reveal your love to those who face eternal damnation. Lord, help us as reformed people not just to understand that theologically, but to be broken in our hearts existentially for those who treat us badly. Oh Lord, fill us with your sacrificial love that we might sacrificially love in return. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.